Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Saturday, October the 21st, 2023. As always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco on the west coast of the United States. What's it like to live on the edge in the United States? Many people still think of it as the world's richest country, perhaps also the world's most unequal country, perhaps the most aristocratic of all countries, ironically enough. We've been hearing about this from a couple of uh, guests over the last couple of days. The uh, Hollywood actress and best-selling writer, Annabelle Gerwich, was on the show talking about uh, her experience of taking in a homeless couple in Los Angeles. Uh, and then yesterday we had Andrea Dobnis uh, Wagner on the show talking about what it's like as a black woman with an invisible disability trying to get a job. Uh, they're both contributors to an important new book, Going for Broke, Living on the Edge in the World's Richest Country. Uh, it's produced uh, by the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, uh, and my guest today, Alyssa Court, who's been on the show before, is the executive director of the EHRP. Uh, Alyssa, welcome and congratulations. What have you been trying to do? Why did you put this book out? You're also uh, one of the editors of the book. Yeah. So I had this idea for this book, uh, I don't know, maybe six or seven years ago when I was running it with Barbara Ehrenreich. Um, Barbara and I kind of built it up starting in 2012 as a response to the 2008 recession and to the contraction within the media industry in general, meaning that most of the people who are still participating uh, in the mainstream media came from more privileged backgrounds, right? It was harder and harder to be working poor or from a working class background and uh, write for newspapers and work for uh, magazines and uh, work in publishing. And so Barbara really wanted to correct that. So we created this thing. And then over the years, we were editing these unbelievable stories. Uh, one of the stories, this is uh, going for broke, is uh, Daryl Wellington's story that Barbara and I edited together, which was a story of a writer, a poet also, who sold his own plasma and wound up so weakened that he uh, felt almost there was like a conspiracy against him and he did it so he could survive to write and to um, continue to function as a culture worker. Um, we had, I had stories about somebody named Gloria Diaz who worked in a potato chip factory who was in an adjunct and that she had to do that again because gig work, brain work had become gig work. And it was something that we were seeing over and over again. It's something I call in my book, before Bootstrapped, uh, which I was on the show for, thanks again, Andrew, uh, squeeze why our families can't afford America. I call it the middle precariat. Uh, and that is the- Yeah, and the, uh, the subtitle of that uh, book, I think it came out in 2018, was it was um, why our families can't afford America. Yeah, and part of why we, uh, why I came up with that book also was that this work with reporters who had fallen on hard times, people like, Annabelle, who in a previous life were able to have a sustainable life in, in coastal cities uh, and now were no longer 
able to or and had also had increased empathy for people who were even uh, in tougher straits as she right. did. And as Annabelle explained, uh, it was a memorable conversation. I mean, she grew up in a middle class family and then her father lost everything and she, she grew up, part of her experience as a child was, was being homeless. Yeah. Which meant that she had this kind of a capacity for identification and uh, Andrea, the other person who contributed to the book, Andrea Devine's Wagner, uh, she is sight impaired. Um, she's also a person of color and she wrote about what it was like to try to get jobs. Uh, they were often in the academy, I believe, um, and people, uh, you know, f experiencing outright bias. And also the, the the struggle to try to apply for jobs when you're, you have a disability. Uh, so, uh, yeah, and she spoke to us from Tuscaloosa. So, I, I'm in two minds, Alyssa, on this book, and, and I'm sure you will correct me. On the one hand, I mean, obviously, there are always going to be losers in any country. I mean, even in the fairest country, Denmark or Norway, you can have people living on the edge. But on the other hand, there seems to be something cascading, if that's the right word, about what's happening in America. Um, later next week, I've got uh, uh, David Leonhardt, um, uh, the New York Times uh, economics writer on, he has a new book out, which actually probably should be read with, with your latest, Bootstrap, which is about the death of the American dream. His is, ours was the shining future, the story of the American dream. So correct me on that first bit. I mean, they're always going to be losers, right? There's always going to be people who don't get what they want. Who well, I would, I don't like the word loser. <laughs> Because I feel like well, losers in an economic sense. Yes, yes. Because also, I feel like a lot of the so-called winners are people who are callous and, um, you know, kind of xenophobic. And like, I, I, I question that that binary. Let's say. Okay. Well, I, 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 uh, let, let, as yeah. I knew you would, you would correct me. You're a good editor, but uh, so well, let's replace that. There's always going to be struggling in this country. There's some people who don't get quite what they want. The poor are always with us. That's sort of the 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 phrase I believe, and you're in people like to use to describe this to um in some ways to minimize this. But um, I mean, I feel like what's changed is I I have a phrase that I've been using terra infirma instead of terra firma that we're on shaken ground and that a lot of the systems that we used to rely on, you know, our healthcare. Um, our weather, uh, our government. Look, right now we're, we're speaking um, with the longest uh, a absence of a speaker of the house since 1971. Um, you know, this is not normal. And so every of these, all of the income inequality markers are exaggerated by the difficulty of just being an ordinary American. Uh, forget being a lower income one. So it's like, how are you gonna, Get a doctor if you're when your GP has a six month waiting list, as mine recently did. Um, how are you gonna um, get your kid to school when there's flash flooding or you're getting burns in the sunshine in Arizona? Um, so I think part of what we're seeing is a, both a political and environmental and economic cataclysm that has just pushed people over the edge. I was talking to Annabelle, and one of the one of the characters she brought up, one of the, the most memorable stories is by Ray Suarez. When I was came to America in the 80s, uh, I remember Suarez was the voice of NPR for me. It was a remarkable journalist. 
Uh, he now does your podcast. You work closely with him. But he yeah. was an example of someone who, who fell uh, into impoverishment. Tell us the, the Suarez story and why that speaks to what, what, why there's a systematic problem with, with what's happening in America. Yeah, he's completely brilliant in addition to being kind of famous. Like not everybody who is famous, as we know, is 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 as gifted as he is. And I just know this because I've been doing all these shows with him. We did this two-part radio, uh, two-season radio show called also called Going for Broke, which has the same, a lot of the same folks in the book. You can hear them uh, if you go to, you know, a podcast site, you can hear go, and I want to get, uh, and and now you've gone public with this. I'm going to get you to make sure that I get Ray on the show. I'd love to have him on the show. Yeah, right. I'm sure he's 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 really good about that. He so he just does this incredible. His voice is like this baritone, like Cordoba leather, and you know, uh, and it's also very. He has a Bronx thing he does. He's incredible. Um, but he had. Uh, fallen on hard times in his 60s. He had sort of aged out of, uh, or that was his, that was his gut that that was what had happened to him, and he wasn't getting work. He had been, uh, I think, downsized or laid off of the last job he had had, which was not at PBS, it was Al, Al Jazeera, and maybe it had closed. I'm trying to remember the details, but it, he wound up looking around and unable to get a gig, and then he had uh, fell and hurt him his his tooth. And he didn't have dental insurance. Mm. And, and he wrote about that. He it was called, it was a great piece in the Washington Post that we we worked on with him called That Sinking Feeling, I believe. Um, yeah, I remember that piece. Yeah, it was really remarkable because he, it was, it showed a lot of readers and as ho hopefully a lot of going for broke, you know, essays do, how close people um, like us are to the edge. And it's that it's, it's one dental accident, it's one job loss, it's one, um, you know, giving up your insurance to pinch pennies uh, that can get you there. And it gave him, I think, though, this really um, profound insight. So in our radio uh, show, he interviewed some of the people who just been on your um, program, Andrea Devines Wagner, and he just had this kind of feeling for people, Bobby Dempsey, another one of our contributors who had lived in, I believe, 70 addresses growing up, like he, and I don't know, I'm not sure if he had that before he had this setback, but he definitely has it now. He's, he is uh, very connected and aware of people who face obstacles that they don't expect. Yeah, I remember there was something um, also, do you remember there was a story with Neil Gabler? Does that uh, right? Yeah, that was a little, but that was a little bit like my kids are going to private school and I can't like, you know, I remember it was it's on the far upper reaches of this middle precariat condition you know oh, it's a crisis in brooklyn yeah 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 everybody was kind of like oh no because it was like um you know i forget it was like yeah it was like on 150,000 you know uh each you know my wife and i it was not it was not good <laughs> i don't i don't even remember but um yeah uh but you know i think one of the, you were saying you know how how has how has this changed? I mean, I think one of the things we have to think about is that, you know, 60% of wealth is estimated to be, of the wealthiest Americans is, is estimated to be inherited. So when people are participating in culture industries and brain work, hmm. if they don't have that, that cushion, and that's a lot of the people in this book, they're just going to be pushed out. 
And then we're not even going to hear the, forget the voices of the poorest Americans. We're not even going to hear the voices of the just getting by middle-class Americans. And you know, that's a real shift from what journalism was. I mean, Barbara came from a mining town in Butte, Montana. Right, yeah. And America has become an aristocracy. You mentioned Barbara is one of my regrets. I never had her on the show. Sadly, she died last year. I've actually had both her kids who were both prominent writers, as it happens, a sort of reflection of that new intellectual aristocracy. Um, what does this aristocracy mean? Why, why don't people recognize it, Alyssa? Why don't we talk about it openly? Tocqueville came here in the 19th century, fleeing European aristocracy, seeing this new thing he called American democracy, and now everything seems to have been reversed. Yeah, I mean, I I, I feel like I rabbit on about it a lot. and. Um... I think part of it is that it's painful to feel like uh, this kind of determinism is painful. Uh, you know, there are some great novelists who had that vision. You know, I think of Theodore Dreiser, people in the you know late nineteenth, early twentieth century. But people want Americans want to believe in the absolute of social mobility, and but you know this was. Uh, you know, Thomas Piketty estimates that roughly 60% of America's private wealth was inherited, not as a result of hard work, you know. And what we want to do with EHRP in this book is to give space for a lot of other people who are living, um, who are not, you know, misusing uh, legal uh, financial vehicles, tax loopholes, Roth IRAs, you know, uh, who are not... Um, you know, whatever, benefiting from the marketplace uh, during the pandemic. There's a lot of a lot of a lot of people out there who also were experienced reporters. So I think um, part of what EHRP and this book is trying to do is to show what happened to them, what what happened to them after 2008. Um, and it's I, I want to emphasize about this book that it's actually has moments of humor and beauty. It's not just misery because I, I felt it was important to include an essay on discount shopping of one writer who was also a caregiver, a nanny. Uh, there's poetry, um, sometimes poetry about being unhoused that with beautiful photos. Um, there's illustrations of uh, union activity. There's, you know, some more optimistic stuff. There's even people who have kind of unusual takes on being unhoused, like uh, it's kind of a homesteader in Alaska wrote an essay about it. And he, on some level in that case, that was a choice he made rather than be a, um, you know, a working poor drone in a private home. He wanted to be a, a guy living on the land. So I feel like to give the sort of strangeness and the complexity of uh, economic uncertainty, that, I mean, that was my intention with this book. We are speaking with Alyssa Quart, who's the executive director of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and an editor, an important new book uh, just out that is sponsored or by the Economic uh, Hardship Reporting Project, Going for Broke, Living on the Edge in the World's Richest Country. Did you include some conservative writers? There's been this recent furor, uh, Alyssa, over the, the country singer from, I think, North Carolina singing about the the wealthy capitalists who are ripping off workers like himself. Did you did you include some angry conservatives in this book? I did not. I did not. And partially because they're not necessarily coming to 
right for us. I mean, we were drawing on our archives. Um, part of what it takes to be somebody who takes a, gets a grant from the Economic Hardship Reporting Project is to believe that people deserve grants, <laughs> you know, and uh, people deserve uh, government assistance. Uh, people deserve grants. They deserve uh, care from their families and communities and money if if they're uh, destitute. So I think the people who would be drawn to a place with a name like EHRP may be a different demographic than the one you're describing. We didn't, we certainly, we haven't gotten pitches, honestly, of the kind you're, you're talking about. Um, but I would actually be really interested if, if you, there's any, that would be interesting. We'll there's to... any libertarian out there. I bet you that would be your, you know, who yeah. uh, struggled financially, who wants to write for us. I, I, so just remind me, in terms of of, of the, the foundation, I don't know if it's, you call it a foundation, the Economic yeah. Hardship Reporting Project you run, where does the money come from? How much do you have and, and where do you mostly give it? Oh, uh, we have a, right now, I think we have roughly a million and a half budget a year and we get it from Ford Foundation, um, JPB, uh, a bunch of, uh, I mean, like, uh, I don't know, eight or nine other foundations. And then we just got an incredible gift from uh, a wonderful labor uh, scholar uh, that um, that I'm going to create a fund in her name for uh, Francis Fox Piven. So we get some private donations, um, but mostly it's like the usual kind of uh, foundation support, you know, uh, I guess capital uh, coming from philanthropy. Um, but then we distribute it and we're very, uh, heavily about giving the money out to the writers and the photographers and the filmmakers, often in organizations, they become these kind of le leviathons that resemble, um, corporations with like lots and lots of people, um, and layers of administration. I mean, we're definitely building more of that, but it, it, it's how can we as quickly as possible get money and editorial help and placement help to all these reporters and photographers who are now shut out of the media and for for whom the media itself no longer uh features them or has access to them <clears throat> like well, there'll be plenty of you know uh their stories in the times about someone living in their car but it's not by the person living in their car in the Leonhard book, which uh, I don't know if you've seen it yet. Yeah, you? yeah, I've been doing events with him. It's funny you met. <laughs> yeah, so. uh, yeah, well, you guys, uh, in terms of the death of the American dream, you're in lockstep. He, I mean, there are so many different in interpretations, obviously, yeah. neoliberalism, Reagan, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, the one yeah, thing yeah. he makes central, which is why I actually like the book, was the decline of unions. You mentioned that one of your big donors is focused on, on unions. Do you see that likely in other central in terms of uh, this decline, this crisis in America, the disappearance essentially of organized labor and at the table? Well, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that was interesting me when I was looking at the union numbers is something like 30 percent. Uh, it used to have uh, 31 percent um, union membership at its peak. At U.S. workers, and now it's just 10%. And unionized workers earn 13% more than non-union workers. And it union density pushes up wages across the board, which is part of why, you know, we're seeing UAW um, 
uprising. This is when I'm speaking to you. Uh, we see uh, a lot of academics, uh, adjuncts organizing, like the New School and in other colleges, University of California system. We see people, you know, unusual, you know, from Starbucks to uh, museums because it 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 raises wages for them and for the rest of us. Uh, and for me, you know, because I wrote this book, Bootstrapped, where I'm trying to change or highlight the way that the American dream can be and should be collective. It's a proof of concept that when we band together, we achieve greater things than when we do it alone. And, you know, part of it is we need to overhaul U.S. labor laws to make uh, kind of the union busting that we're seeing even in these like fancy, you know, academic, uh, academic Ivy League kind of places, uh, uh, you have to make to make it easier for workers to form and join unions. I mean, it shouldn't be this hard for people to be in a union. We're speaking with uh, Alyssa Korch, has been on the show before, and we're talking about a new book, Going for Broke, an anthology, Living on the, on the Edge in the World's Richest Country, an anthology put together by the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, which she is the director of take a short break. I want to thank our sponsor, Liberty's Quarterly, an excellent new publication about culture and politics. Going to run a short ad for Liberty's and then we'll be back to talk more specifically about the five intriguing sections in, in the book that uh, Alyssa sponsored. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas, it's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at Liberties journal.com we are talking with Alyssa court who um helped edit going for broke living on the edge in the world's richest country the book got a lovely review in kirkus uh Alyssa, as i'm sure you know and it noted that the book is divided into five sections the body home family work and class i've been looking through the different sections why did you decide on those five sections yeah, I did. I came up with a, I sort of devised this book, but um, yeah, I mean, I wanted to lead with body. I think part of it was I was editing this at the time when Dobbs was overturned and I can't help but see a huge connection between having our, you know, reproductive rights effectively blocked in many states um, and our bodily autonomy taken away and income inequality and poverty because, uh, you know, women are now being forced to have children that are unwanted and we don't recognize our society's dependence on labor performed by women, both inside and outside the home. So what I really wanted with this, the body section was to underline that, but also to get into things like disability because, um, you know, people talk about intersectionality, but I think it's better to like, practice it, you know, to really just do something that's around uh, poverty, labor, like like our organization or this book, and have it have these other elements that are sometimes people are surprised, like why would reproductive rights or disability be in 
included in a income inequality uh, nonprofit or anthology by that nonprofit. And it's because so many people who are disabled are underemployed. Uh, so many people who have unwanted children are living below the poverty line. You know, these, these things are all come together and we need to hear the stories of people who've experienced it. So this, there's a first person story about someone who couldn't access um, the abortion pill in Texas and was like, you know, uh, living under the gun. Uh, there's stories about people who had PTSD from their birth because they were mm. uh, lower income and they were trying to give birth and they were having these terrible psychological and physical effects and uh, they weren't getting proper standard of care. So I think like th those voices are not necessarily what you would expect in a book like this, but to me that it was very crucial at, at this time to have them in there. We move on to the home, which is probably in some ways the absence of a home. Mm -hmm. I just finished a book called San Francisco, San Francisco, which Oh, I know that guy. You know that guy? What do you think of the book? I've done like events with him too. That's a, uh, I have not read it. I'm surprised about the turn he's taken. Um, well, the book, the title, I don't think, I think it's a little bit sensationalist. The book, but the, what the book does address is the fact that so many homeless people uh, are suffering mental illness, which is obviously highly political. What's your take and, and what kind of, uh, pieces did you include on the home or homelessness in in the yeah. anthology? Well, we we I try to find people who actually can write from being unhoused, and uh, we have a few people in this section that are evicted or, or have been homeless. Um, the a very striking one is um, poems by somebody named Jennifer Fitzgerald about being homeless during the pandemic. Yeah, homeless um, in a pandemic, the housing poetry of Je Jennifer Fitzgerald. Uh, yeah. We have a special introduction from you on mm -hmm. that one. Yeah, and then um, Joseph Williams, who was evicted and he had been a reporter at Politico. I mean, again, this is a very, it's a similar- yeah, this piece is called Eviction Land, so. Yeah, and like, what, what does it feel like? Again, with this middle precariat thing, I think that's a good portal for readers to, uh, see themselves in the experience of someone who, who's been evicted. Like this guy was formerly, you know, middle-class reporter and he fell on hard times for various reasons. And then he's being this evicted. This is Williams. I mean, in a sense, like uh, Ray Suarez. Yeah. I mean, on a different scale, a probably inc uh, uh, income scale, but yeah, definitely. And, and I think to me, that is important. Like this um, hinge figures that can really, uh, draw the reader in and implicate them, you know, like this is not the other only. This is this is your problem, too, <laughs> you know. Uh, let's move on to the family section. Um, there's a huge division. I mean, it's one of the great cultural divisions in this new aristocracy between strong middle class, upper middle class families and uh, more of a crisis. Is that something you found in this anthology, the breakdown of the family and the way in which it goes together with living on the edge? Or were there many fam or are there many two-parent families with two or three children living on the edge? Yeah, I mean, I think I found that many of the people writing for us were women who were heading families. And sometimes they were older and that happened again and again and it wasn't an accident you know um that's 
uh, women make 82 cents, I think, on the dollar for men. There's uh, a lot of bias, uh, motherhood tax to begin with. Um, and again, these are not people who had that cushion um, of the new aristocracy. So that the family, it's not only about women's experience, of course, it's also about people who grew up poor and what that was like looking back. Um, but yeah, I, I felt that was also another very relatable thing. Like uh, thinking of, there's an essay by Elizabeth Kadetsky, who's a, an accomplished essayist. Uh, My sister is a recovering heroin addict. I can't fix her, but she also can't fix herself. Which is something that, you know, a lot of people ha have experienced. Like they have a sibling who has mental health challenges, falls through the cracks, and then um, they're na navigating a system that, again, they were not accustomed to necessarily. Or Bobby Fieseler's My Marriage Was Broken, The Coronavirus Lockdown Saved It. Um, which is and you've also got the uh, Annabelle Gerwich uh, essay, yeah. in that, which came out in her collection. Um, moving on to the section on work, or perhaps, again, it's the absence of work. What ties these essays together? Yeah, I mean, I... Part of why, so each of the sections also, I, I, I found people, you know, with the publisher, me and the publisher found contributors to make sense of the, the so the person in this instance was Kathy Weeks, who's like a really great labor scholar, who who is one of the people responsible for the concept of post-work. Yeah, um, we should get her on the show too. Is she, she an academic? She's an academic. She's really smart. And um you know, so I could even read uh, what she wrote here because it's part of, um, you know, um, delivery workers, Uber drivers, retail workers, taxi drivers, blah, 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 and other service workers whose experiences are recounted in this section may not be out of sight in the way factory workers can be, but they remain somehow out of mind, a kind of ideological blindness that may be harder to challenge than simple invisibility. The term disavowal is one way to describe this disappearing, this hiding in plain sight. And I think part of with this work section, I'm trying, you know, as part of the assigning project, um, people like Ann Larson, who worked as a cashier during the pandemic and kind of brilliantly made this point that, um, that she herself was curbside delivery. And that the use of the language around work during the pandemic would, um, you know, cancel out the, the human risk, you know, curbside delivery, people, you know, our friends, I don't know, my friends would be like, I, that store has curbside, right? Do you remember? Yeah, I mean, I, I know what you're talking about. And it, um, Andrea was in this. And of course, she wrote about her own invisible, you're speaking of in, invisibility, in, in, invisible disability. Yeah. And I think so. Like I, I like the distinction Kathy made here between uh, like invisible and hidden, because I think a lot of these, you know, adjuncts too, and that's part of uh, yeah. Uh, and disavowal is a good framing too, because it's like it's not our problem. We're not really engaged by it. Um, and yeah, I want to give those uh, pick that picture of those lives. Like the potato chip factory essay is very striking to me by Gloria Diaz. I mentioned it earlier. Um, there's like blood on the floor of the potato chip factory and she had worked as a academic. And so she was trying to make sense of where she had been and where she was going. 
Um, but, you know, and I don't know how many people um, have uh, have experienced this kind of thing and just have not been able to find a place to speak about it publicly. So that to me, it was another uh, service we were providing with this book. Yeah, we did a show with, uh, are you familiar with Pramila, uh, uh, Pramila uh, Nadison? She, she has a new book out called Care, which she writes about this underclass of people um, who, every, who are invisible. But of course, what happened under COVID is there suddenly became this cult around these people, which now seems to have gone away. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that and whether oh, you included some, yeah. uh, some, uh, some COVID essays. Yeah, I mean, within the few days of uh, COVID, I wrote a piece for Slate that I think I'm started to call them frontline workers. Yeah, um, she calls, by the way, uh, sorry to interrupt, she calls uh, Pramila Nelson, her book is Care, the Highest Stage of Capitalism, which of course, she is an inversion of I, I, I think you'd actually find that an interesting book too. I'm going to read this and I want to meet her now. She sounds amazing. Yeah, um, she is. And she's a, yeah. she's a sort of a scholar of this care economy. I think she would, she would be very interested in what you're doing. Yeah, I'm going to reach out to her because I think that's, yeah, what I've been struck by, but it's like a post-pandemic amnesia where we actually had during the, a couple of years there, solutions that cut child poverty in half. Um, we had, uh, you know, child tax credit, we had eviction moratoria, we had, uh, you know, uh, relaxed Medic Medicaid and SNAP, or, you know, kind of re regulatory stuff. People didn't have to um, keep re-enrolling, which is something that often keeps people who actually need the benefits from getting them. Um, so there's a lot of things that were, you know, happening that were supporting people, you know, people were getting basically the equivalent of universal basic income and kids were less desperate. And that to me is like, okay, we can do that. You know, we can get money to Ukraine and now Israel. We can, we can do that. We can um, provide some of these things for families with children. If only that, um, but it, it, it ended, people don't want to think about the pandemic, but I feel like they don't want to think about the solutions that came out of it either. And that to right. me is kind of a tragedy. Like, Yeah, you should definitely look at the Nadison. I think you and she would actually enjoy talking to one another. And then the fifth section is on class, that old yeah, that leftist obsession, for better or worse. How, how did you... How did you get this one in and what do you mean by class? Yeah, you know, I didn't know what to do. I was struggling with the last one um, and I wanted it to have more, more of a conceptual element. Like what is, what is being precarious? What is being working class? What is um, an Astra Taylor, who's a wonderful writer, wrote the intro to that section. And we have illustrations so you can see we should probably that it's it's also a visual book um, of somebody named Emily Flake, who's a wonderful illustrator about the difference between being broke and being poor. Um, I guess I was trying to get at uh, what? Yeah, it was sort of like the meta section where uh, where a lot of the uh, framing and biases and external discourse around the previous sections kind of were located. So that's sort of why I ended with class. 
there's a really good essay in there called uh, What Does It Mean to Be Bad with Money? You know, just kind of um, the kind of stuff that I actually write about in my last book, Bootstrap. Yeah, and, uh, the Suarez piece. Uh, there's nothing, there's no formal section on technology, but I guess that touches on, on all of it, especially the role of AI in only deepening this crisis, I'm guessing. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, I keep thinking like Silicon Valley Bank and bailout is to college debt forgiveness as open AI is to a kid plagiarizing a college essay. It's like, so the, sort of like the, this, this AI is the, is these AI companies that are mining 180, what was 182,000, 183,000 books by established authors are the, the 1% basically of plagiarization, <laughs> you know, and they're going to get forgiven. Whereas like the schmuck who uh, cribs something for an essay or uses it in a remix and uses it and, you know, does a, a hip hop song where, you know, they take a, a beat, they're going to get, um, you know, punished and sued, right? So what we need to do is invert this where, you know, pastiche and homage are, and free culture are more forgiven and open AI is more punished, is, is greater punishment. And well, you're, not it, alone, uh, yeah. you're not alone, Alyssa, in wanting to punish open AI. Finally, I mean, this is a big, big question and we could spend another show discussing it, but I think it's an appropriate place to end. Where to begin here? Is this a ultimately beginning politically with rebuilding unions, addressing perhaps the Democratic Party, creating another party? What can we do here? Well, you know, I've said this. Um, one of the things that um, really struck me about some of the new uh, politicians that are rising up I mentioned Maxwell Alejandro Frost and other people is that they acknowledge coming from working class backgrounds and not having a lot of money uh, and they acknowledge vulnerability. And that's really important. I think to start electing people who look like the rest of the country, 47%, you know, not able to pay three months of expenses or something like that, you know, um, uh, nearly 30 million Americans have no health insurance and hundred million Americans have medical debt. Our politicians, uh, I think, the, I'm trying to remember if the median is a mil millionaires. I mean, they're not, it's, they don't reflect us. So that is w one of the ways <laughs> we have to keep highlighting that. I think um, people of uh, Democrats need to keep highlighting that. But the problem is a lot of them are also millionaires, right? Um, but yeah, so I think that definitely, you know, there's a lot of places we can start here. We can start with the unions, the labor law question. We can start... Um, to uh, housing policy that re recognizes shelter as a fundamental right, because right now the average renter spends 30% uh, of their income on rent. Um, you know, uh, we can make sure that uh, this is part of the taxation system too. Three wealthiest families own more wealth than the bottom half of the American people, you know? And that has to do with partially low taxes on extreme wealth. And the contributors to this book, you know, are paying their taxes, right? <laughs> um, and they're seeing the results of that and that their labor has gone um, unrewarded in that sense.